Well, good morning. Hello. How are we? Doesn't feel very spring-like today, does it? Do you know? No, just uh, feels a bit, uh, maybe. But uh, the good news is God is not feeling at all. Uh. Um, so, uh, yeah, turn to a neighbor. And if you're on your own, take that incredible risk and just spot somebody to sort of mouth something out or shout something out. Um, uh, what would you say are the greatest needs in the world today? They are a small, easy question. What would you say are the greatest needs in the world today? Here we go. <laughs> I think you've had a few clues um, already, so, uh, you know, kind of hoping you'll be all right with this question. Good. Okay. That was easy, wasn't it? That was easy. So here you go. Here's a question you don't have to share with anyone. The answer you don't have to share with anyone other than God. What's your greatest need? Just be real a moment. What is your absolute greatest need? Maybe it's, it's really obvious to you. You know the prayer already because you've been making it um, at home, here, might even be a prayer that genuinely no one other than God knows. So what is it? What is your greatest need? Because we could mess around for the next 20, 25 minutes and I could try and say some clever things. Um, but really what it comes down to is, is God. It's all about God. And uh, spiritual problems need spiritual solutions. God, God works through the fabric and the weave of creation because he's God and he's made it. And so God does act through people in the ways that we've heard. And he is acting in your life. And the physical choices you make and the emotional choices that you and I make will make a difference. But ultimately, the bottom line is spiritual problems need spiritual solutions. So let's not waste a moment of time. Let's not you know, have a load of hors d'oeuvres in order to get to the main course. What's the main course for you? What is your greatest need? Why don't you just quietly just say that to God now? Some of you, I can see eyes are closed. I can see Holy Spirit just working on people. If you're new to this, what we're believing is that God is here now. He is present. He has the answers to our prayers. We're not talking about a distant landlord. We're not praying to someone who might or might not be listening to us. We are praying to the creator of the universe, the holy of holy, the Lord God Almighty, the one who worked across the, the deep, the chaos of the deep and brought order, the one who is the center line of history, the one who has said in Jesus, I'm returning. And one day there will be no tears. One day every weapon will be beaten into a plowshare. Picture of peace. We're praying to the Prince of Peace. And he is both bothered about the macro level of the whole of creation and he is bothered about you. Just say your name quietly to yourself. He is bothered about... He sees you. He knows you. He loves you. He only wants to give you good things. 
What father would give a snake, says Jesus, to, to their child if their child came and asked? No, he gives good things. He gives bread. He gives life. There are some of you here today who you've kind of got a, a sort of a bit of a distant relationship with God. You're, you're desperately saying, I want to be back closer. There are people in the building today, first time for two years. There are people online just watching because you're desperate for it to be true. And it is true. The Holy Spirit, God, is with us. The same power that rose Jesus from the cross, resurrection, new life, that same power is in us now, in this place, right now, right now. You don't need me to give you a talk to warm you to that point. You already know everything that you need to know. So come, Holy Spirit. You might hold a hand. You might put a, a hand on a heart. I'm doing this now because we might run out of time at the end. Come, Holy Spirit, right now. We do not want to leave this building the same way that we came in. We do not want to switch off on the live stream having not been transformed by you, your presence. We all have prayers. This is my prayer. This is my sense of greatest need, God. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Just fall in this place. Fall in this place now. Fall in this place. All in this place. Let there be healings in the name of Jesus. Healings physically. Healings emotionally. Let there be healings spiritually. In the name of Jesus, we, this is where we stand now. This is where we stand. We've had enough. We're sorry we've tried everything else. We come to you. The philosopher Kierkegaard, many of you will probably know this famous story, told a story about a gang of thieves who broke into a jewellery shop. They didn't steal a thing. What they did was they changed around all the labels So the price labels that were on the costume jewellery and the cheap earrings, they put those on the most expensive tiaras and rings and vice versa. And then they left without trace. And the next day, all they did was they went into the shop and bought the most expensive items for the least amount of money. And meanwhile, at the same time, there were incredibly fabulously wealthy rich people coming in and paying thousands and thousands and thousands of pounds for rubbish. Do you maybe sense the point about what we value? This is the season of Lent. It's that season of 
of preparation, isn't it? And some of us go through the motions, but, but God still blesses. And God is calling us, I think, to a special, a special Lent and reflection at this time of year because spiritual problems need spiritual solutions. There are two themes that we're following. You're going to need your Bibles open at, at, at Luke chapter 5 in a moment. But they're, they're fasting and feasting. By the way, I gather if you don't watch out on the autocorrect on your tweets, that first word, when you put it into your phone, it'll change the S into an R. Um, so just be careful. We're on fasting and feasting. And you might want to say, hang on a second, those are, those are opposites, aren't they? Those are two different things. But the point is, if you read your Bible, you'll know they're the same two sides of the same coin. Maybe you don't know that. Hopefully I'm going to be able to show you. So for example, big picture, have you spotted that the three Gospels we call the Synoptic Gospels because they share the same source material, Matthew, Mark and Luke. What, what happens before Jesus starts his main ministry? He goes into the wilderness and he fasts. Fasts. John's Gospel written later, trying to explain the significance of the signs, trying to answer the question, who is this Jesus? These first three Gospels have sort of given account in events of his life. What happens as Jesus' preparation for his public ministry? Anyone alive? I can't hear what you're saying, Ruth. No. He goes to a feast at a place called Cana. A wedding feast. Is that contradictory? Not at all. Because they're both things that happen in response to what God is doing and in preparation for what God is going to do. Fasting and feasting. Because they both in biblical understanding of fasting, they both express the same truth. That God is at work. And the, the single thing of greatest value in our lives is connecting with him. Understanding how his story intertwines with our story. You may know that the three synoptic Gospels, the three Gospels that share the same synopsis, we get that word, don't we, the same core-based material, have different paces. Mark is fast and pacey. Matthew is measured. There's some fast bits and there's some slow bits. Luke is slow. Luke is measured. Luke takes 10 chapters to get Jesus on his journey to Jerusalem. And it's punctuated by meals. There are at least 10 meals, eight explicitly, two others where it's implied very strongly that there would be food. Martha and Mary, that story, for example, Martha is preparing a meal. doesn't tell us in the text that Jesus eats a meal, but it would have been odd for Martha to prepare a meal and Jesus didn't eat it. And the meals punctuate the journey and the meals are, are the places where they're key moments of Jesus' teaching. 
And they're not only just teaching in word, they're enacted teaching. They're enacted visible, visual, tangible teaching. You, you see it before your eyes. You, you experience it. And that's why I prayed like I did at the beginning, because we're not just here to kind of receive what God might say to us in our, in our word, in our minds. We actually want it to make a difference. We need it to be tangible. Meals in the culture, table fellowship was central to the way that things worked. The religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees, out of their 330-something rules, 229 of them were to do with how you ate with others. 229. Because the way that you exercise table fellowship spoke absolutely about identity, about a sense of social rank, about who was welcome and who wasn't welcome, about who's the guest, who's the host. And Jesus turns their values completely on their head. He changes the labels. The things that they were valuing in the 229 rules, largely, he's saying, they're not the valuable things at all. These are the things which are valuable. Let me show you physically, tangibly, what God is about, what the kingdom of heaven, what it looks like when you have God in his right place, ruling in your life. When your answer to the question, what's your greatest need is, I need God, I need more of God. When you, when you make that prayer of your greatest personal need today, it's you, God. Spiritual problems need spiritual solutions. And so here we are, we're at, we're at Levi's house today as the first of these meals. Just look it up on, in chapter 5, Luke chapter 5. Let's just read it to, to, together. This is, this is such a shock, this, this meal. Some of you know, what was Levi's other name? Who, who's he known by in the other Gospels? Matthew. So if you didn't know that, Matthew, probably his first name. Mark tells you he was Levi, the son of, can't remember, begins with an A. Um, he's, he become, he's, his life is so turned upside down, the labels on what is valuable, etc., so changed, literally his name changes. Levi becomes Matthew. Let's read. After this, Jesus went out all. Ah, what's the first word, first two words? After this. So what are we going to need to do? Yeah. Okay, you've got that, haven't you? With your Bible reading. So let's come back to that. Lucky I noticed. I hadn't spotted that. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left. What's the word? Okay, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house. And a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. A large number of the 229 rules broken. Thank you. <laughs> but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect 
were delighted that the kingdom of heaven had broken in and that those who'd previously been sinners were now coming to know the Lord Jesus. So they joined the feast and celebrated with Jesus and said, yes, this is what we've been reading about in all of our scriptures all of these years. And finally, we're now seeing it. The tax collector, who's the greatest traitor because he takes the money from us to give to the Roman conquerors, has now connected with you, God, and has now given up everything that they once valued because they now realize they've got something of greater value. Praise God. But the Pharisees and the teacher of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. They said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. Jesus answered, verse 34, can you make the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days, they will fast. Fasting and feasting. Fasting and feasting, two sides of the same coin. Let's put up my little graphic slide to illustrate this. The after this is referring back to the previous chapter and the chapter before where, yes, Jesus goes into the wilderness and fasts. But the Pharisees, seeing what goes on, are also bothered about fasting. They're asking questions about fasting. And in the middle, there's a banquet. There's a feast. Let's just remind ourselves a moment about the practice of fasting. Tim said we've got a a seminar later. Um, Would you agree with me that most people fast in our culture to get God to do something? Do you realize that that is not how the Bible ever talks about fasting? There's a great um, video on YouTube that I watched, uh, which really sets this out. Tim Mackey, The Bible Project. Fasting in the Bible is in response to God. Fasting in the Bible is responding to God. Jesus responds to his baptism. Notice that. Responds to his baptism and the filling and the work of the Holy Spirit and then goes and fasts. He doesn't fast in order to get baptized and in order... Do you see what I'm saying? Moses encounters God, Exodus 34, and then goes on a 40-day fast. Elijah, 1 Kings 19, experiences, encounters God on Mount Carmel and then goes on a 40-day fast. When the Ninevites, in the story of Jonah, are called to repentance and they encounter God and they weep in the encounter and the presence and the experience of God, then they fast. 
in the Psalms. There are definitely times where fasting is a response to challenge and specific spiritual need. In the Psalms, when David is under attack, Psalm 35, for example, Nehemiah hears about the needs of the city that's being destroyed of Jerusalem. He fasts and prays, but he's heard first the need and then he's responding with the fast. Esther, when Esther is called to her special work for God, she hears the call and in response she fasts. I think the truth is Andrew Blythe most often Lenten fasts in order to try and get God to do a bit more for Andrew Blythe. That is my repentance with you this morning because that's the truth. Is my first response to spiritual encounter with God to fast and pray? What's going on? Again, Tim Mackey helpfully talks about this. There's a deliberate interruption of the norm. We would all say, as we look at Ukraine, it comes into graphic uh, kind of uh, focus, doesn't it? Food is a basic necessity. We need food to live. You, you have to have food. It's your basic need and re- To fast is to interrupt the norm and declare physically, I believe that my dependency is on God. He's who I need. The devil comes to Jesus in the wilderness and Jesus' response is, man, men and women clearly, Humanity does not live on bread alone. And you see, this great banquet that fits in the middle of this sandwich of fasting is actually containing the same dynamic. Because Levi, we read in verse 29, here's the call to follow Jesus, then... He holds a great banquet. It's in response to spiritual encounter. Now, clearly in our culture, we have a load of unhealthy, selfish feasting. But here, what's going on is Matthew has given up everything that the world would regard as valuable, in order to take hold of the thing of greatest value. And so he has a banquet, a feast. And Jesus joins him, demonstrating the radical hospitality of the kingdom. To be at the table is to have full acceptance. To be at the table is to to be intimate with others. And Matthew invites his friends into this intimacy, into this radical hospitality. It's not a a neat middle-class dinner party. That's not what we're talking about. It's, It's a radical hospitality at the table. And it's an opening of yourself, and it involves sacrifice. In the same way, here's another commonality. In the same way that fasting involves a sacrifice, it involves a, a denial of something. Actually, this kind of feasting involves sacrifice in the sense of denying self, 
of putting perhaps your guest list away and having a radically new guest list. It involves the generosity, of course, of provision, of resource, of food. And in the, in the culture of this day, we have to sense this. Two sides of the same coin. Jesus references the bridegroom at a feast, doesn't he? Many of us know our Bibles know that in the Psalms 23, God lays out a feast for us. Revelation, the picture of being with God in heaven, is at a banquet, at a feast, where Jesus is the bridegroom and the, the church, that's us, not the building, you'll be delighted to know, us, we are the bride. This is... This is teaching made real and physical. This is expression of spiritual encounter, its response. And already we're thinking, I hope, about the last supper, the last of the meals that we're going to track through as we go over these weeks with Luke's gospel. And N.T. Wright, the theologian and writer, said, Jesus did not leave us with a theory to explain his death. And resurrection, he left us with a meal. And we shared it this morning. You see those refugees getting off the track. I think for me, one of the clearest things of this Ukraine war, this horrific, horrendous, wrong war, which will be judged is being judged. There will be resolution. There will be justice for every single thing. One of the powerful, most powerful images to me, though, is those Germans standing at train stations. And as refugees come off, someone says, we've got a family of four, need to speak French. Any, anyone here? Someone puts their hand up. They go off. We've got a, a, a family of six. Anyone able to host them? Yeah, that's me. You know, friends, I'd love to think I'd be the first in the queue at Cheltenham Station, but I'm not absolutely sure that hand on heart I can re I don't know. I'm bothered about that question enough to believe that I would hope. And I definitely know, I cannot promise you that I would stand on that platform if a train came into Cheltenham with refugees and say to myself, God, I will take anyone. I, I think in me being real, I'd be hoping that it was a kind of, oh, give me a consultant radiologist and, 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 and his wife. You know, I'm really hoping I'm not going to get the family with seven kids and whatever and whatever. Now, that might just be me. But it's not, is it? Thank you, there's so many in this family who exercise radical hospitality. Thank you. I know I need to fast more in response to God, not to try and make God do anything for me. I know I need to feast more and lay out a banquet more in this kind of radical way as well. Before I came into ministry, I used to do consultancy work. Yeah, I would borrow clients' watches and tell them the time for a large amount of money, to use the old joke. And one of the clients I worked for had connection with somebody at the House of Lords. 
And one Friday, when I was quite young, late 20s, I found myself in the House of Lords having lunch on a Friday. And Lord, whoever it was, sitting at the head of the table, said, Oh, yes, the fish, the fish on Friday at the Lords is excellent. I thoroughly recommend it. And I sat there thinking, goodness sake, what am I doing here? I'm an imposter. You all know, I'm sure you've heard of the imposter syndrome. Uh, welcome to my world, by the way, here. Um, I thought I've got no right to be at this table. No right at all. Do you feel like that about Jesus' table? Some of you here today, you, you, that's how you feel. You feel like you'd be the refugees getting off the train who were dirty and didn't have your shoes and you were a bit smelly, not like the not like some of the other refugees. And you'd almost be worried about the family that was going to host you, the ones who would say, you'd, you'd be a little bit embarrassed. And when it comes to God, you could magnify that a hundredfold. That's how you feel at this, this thought of being welcomed at, at, the, at the table of the Lord. But you see, God has switched the labels. What, what we might think of in worldly terms as being valuable and important and significant is in the kingdom of heaven, it's, it's nothing. I love that little story about the person who couldn't get in through the gates of heaven. St. Peter stopped and they had a big sack. And, and, and he said, I've got, to have, I've got to take this in with me. And St. Peter said, well, we've got everything you need here. No, I've got to have this with me. Peter said, well, what's in the sack? Looked in the sack and there were gold bars. And, and Peter looks at the gold bars and says, what, you, you want to bring some paving stones into heaven? The price has been paid for you. And the price, what was the price paid for you? What's, what's the ticket say? God. Everything. Jesus on the cross. That's what your price ticket says on it. Jesus. God. On the cross. For you. See, the hard question in this whole story is, who are the healthy and who are the sick? The Pharisees, the religious of their day, hello, weren't getting this right. <laughs> are you healthy? Or are you sick? Hand on my own heart. Or where is the health in me? A biblical question. Where is the sickness that needs God, the healer, the restorer? Just why don't you do this again? Just put a hand on your heart if you want to or open a hand. God, examine me. This is a season of examination, Lent. This is not playing games. This is not just preparation for Easter eggs. This is real. You, you give us in this story an eschatological, a future perspective. There is a day coming when Jesus will come back, the judge of all. This matters. This is real. God, examine our hearts. Where is their health? Where is there a sickness 
spiritually, that needs you, the spiritual restorer, the spiritual physician. Come, Holy Spirit. You said to to Levi, who became Matthew, follow me. And he gave up everything. And he celebrated. He held a feast because he had given up everything that the world would say has value. And he took hold of the thing of greatest price. You. God, let this be a a line in the sand. Let's be done with fasting to somehow try and get you to, you know, holy score points to try and get you to do a bit more, God. If we're going to fast, if we're going to deny ourselves of anything, if we're going to lay down anything this Lent, let it only be in response to you, God. Let it be a heart cry for more of you. Let it be in response, Holy Spirit, to what you're doing in us personally and as a church. And if we're going to feast this Lent, if we're going to have table fellowship, if we're going to open up the tables, let it be surrounded. Let it be radical. Let it be tax collectors, prostitutes, sinners just like us at the table. Let this church reflect a radical hospitality, the hospitality of Jesus in response We recognize that we've made do with microwave meals and fast food takeaways. And we need soul food. We need soul food. We need to chew really slowly this Lent on you, God. Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come. Let me see the label that you have put on me. The price has been paid. Jesus on the cross. New life. Come, Holy Spirit. Come.